All right, good morning, everybody. It was very uh, apt that uh, Nate prayed for clarity of mind for myself because I am running 20 hours awake now. So why I decided to say yes to preaching after doing a night shift is beyond me. <laughs> I really should have not. But now it just really means that if you hear anything legible out of my mouth, it's all the spirit and not me. <laughs> So, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, We're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 25. Um, I'm going to start with a little bit of an extended detour, um, just by way of introduction, and then um, get right into the heart of Hebrews chapter 10. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful to come before you today. Lord, we're thankful to come before you as your church. Um, Lord, we're thankful we are a body of believers. Um, Lord, we're thankful, Lord, that you have given us such a wonderful reality of the gospel. Um, Lord, I pray that today, Lord, the gospel would be preeminent, Lord, that um, through the preaching of your word, Lord, that you would be magnified, um, Lord, that you would speak through me, Lord, it would not be my words, and Lord, I would not be glorified, but Lord, you would be glorified through what I say. Um, Lord, I pray that as we fellowship this afternoon, Lord, I pray that um, you would be magnified in that, um, Lord, through the baptisms, Lord, through our fellowship and communion. Lord, we're thankful for all the great realities, um, Lord, we get to celebrate, Lord, in the salvation that you've given us. Pray this all in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right. Um, so today we have the opp- awesome opportunity of celebrating communion and baptism. Um, to the two ordinances in the church, um, both that magnify the gospel. Um, In communion, we really magnify the gospel and we remember Christ's sacrifice for us. And in baptism, we testify um, to the public and to the church um, that we have accepted that um, gospel message. Um, Oftentimes, uh, when we do communion, we read through a passage of Scripture. Um, We'll read through, say, 1 Corinthians 11. Um, We'll read through maybe what Jesus said at the Last Supper in one of the synoptic gospel accounts, whether it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Um, It's easy to kind of read through those texts. Um, And if you're anything like me, sometimes in the midst of reading through those texts, we can kind of gloss over some of the details. Um, We can sometimes miss some details that are some pretty awesome realities. Um, One of those awesome realities is we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 11 here that's going to tie into um, our context of Hebrews chapter 10. So uh, I'm going to have a slight detour into 1 Corinthians 11, um, then verses 23 through 25. All right, Peter, I'm going to have to punt this over to you. All right, so 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What I want to focus on today is that new covenant of Christ's blood 
Um, namely, what in the world is that new covenant? I mean, we, we say that things like covenant, we, we say terms like new covenant, old covenant. We talk about these terms, but what does that actually mean for us as a church? You know, what does that mean for me as a believer? And what does that mean for us as a church body? How, how does that impact us? How does the new covenant impact us? And what I'm going to submit to you guys today is that the new covenant is our guarantee of total and perfect forgiveness and should impact how we live as believers and as a church body. The new covenant is the guarantee of our total and perfect forgiveness and should impact how we live as believers and as a church body. So flipping back to Hebrews, I think it's helpful first to define what a covenant is. And then for us to get some of the context, both biblical and the context of Hebrews, so we can understand what we're jumping into here in Hebrews chapter 10. So what even is a covenant? Um, Like I was saying, I'm guilty as anyone of using big words and not always understanding the full ramifications of what that word means. Um, Our word for covenant in English comes from a Latin term that means to come together. Um, The Old Testament use of the word covenant Um, covenant is the Hebrew word barut, which means to bond um, or to bind oneself to another person. Um, In the New Testament, they use the Greek word diathike, which means to carries kind of the sense of a treaty or to be inclined towards someone. This concept of covenant is a coming together of two parties, usually one greater and one lower, like a king and a servant. It's brought, it brings with it expectations of commitment and responsibility and blessings that would come about as a result of this partnership and this relationship, but also punishment that would come about as a result of breaking that oath. This deep promise and bond to another person, we, see, we saw in Genesis when we looked at the Abrahamic covenant. When God made his covenant with Abraham, he used the custom of the day, which was to cut animals in two and to walk in between the halves of the animals to say that if I am to break this promise and this partnership with you, have it done to me as we have done to these animals. May I be sawn in two if I break this partnership, if I break this promise to you. So a covenant's not just a mere short-term endeavor. This is a long-standing partnership, a deep-seated partnership and promise to another. So we understand that this covenant means it's a deep, solidified partnership. But what is the significance of covenant partnership in the narrative of Scripture? So the biblical narrative is driven forward by God making partnerships or covenants with man. In Genesis, God gives man dominion over the world, and he gives him the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He only requires of him not to partake of one part of God's creation, namely the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But man in the fall chose to partake of the one forbidden piece of God's creation, severing his partnership with God. In the fall, we broke our relationship with God. 
And although the curse of death and the fall is the just punishment incurred upon man for his rebellion on God, God is merciful and promises man to bring restoration. And in that promises, in that promise, he promises to continue to eventually partner with man. The the key thing to notice, though, is that God is the one who partners with man. And throughout the God is the initiator of partnership with man. Man, throughout this narrative of Scripture, does nothing but rebel outside of God's grace. And after the fall and God's promise, we see that the, the earth delves into rebellion. So much so that God has to judge the earth and wipe the slate clean with the flood. And then we see that he makes a covenant with Noah and with all living things. That he's not going to, to clear the slate again through flood. And in doing so, he creates a stable environment through which he can bring his promise of restoration. But after that, we see that at the Tower of Babel, man again rebels. Man tries to level himself with God. And in doing so, God is merciful and scatters him. And then God partners with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Abraham to make for himself a people through which he would bring his promise of restoration. But even in that, his people were not always faithful to him. Whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Jacob's sons, all the way to Moses. And then you have the Mosaic Covenant, where God makes another partnership with his people to show them the standard of his holiness. And yet, with that standard of holiness, he gives the sacrificial system so that they know the penalty of sin and the grievous nature of transgressing against God's holiness. But man again still rebels. God leads them into the promised land. He gives them a place, and yet they still rebel. And they only rebel all the more, so much so that they get to the point where they want their own king. They don't want the rulership of the Lord anymore as his people. And then God, in his mercy, partners with David. And through David's line, he promises to bring that promise of of restoration through the one who would bring that promise which is Christ. But David's line uh, rebels, and the people continue to rebel, even after, again, another promise from the Lord. So God, in his mercy, scatters them. So we have a promise of a stable environment. We have a promise of a people through which the promise of restoration will come. We've got the standard that reflects God's holiness. And we have the, the promise of the kingship that Christ will come through. But the rebellion of God's people led to their scattering. But before he scattered them, he left them another promise. First through Hosea to the northern kingdom of Israel before Assyria scattered them. 
This was the promise of the new covenant, an everlasting covenant. This covenant would restore the broken world that they saw around them. This would bring forgiveness for the sins that they had transgressed against the Lord. And then the covenant once again was promised through through Jeremiah and Isaiah as Babylon was coming to scatter the southern kingdom of Judah. And then once again, the the promise was given through Ezekiel as the people were scattered and there seemed to be no hope of the promise of restoration coming. The new covenant is God's promise to bring restoration to a world which is cursed. Faithfulness to a people who are unfaithful. Restoration to a broken relationship. And forgiveness of sins that separate rebellious men and women from God. This new covenant promise is what anchors the context of Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, we find ourselves at the end of a lengthy section of exposition on the supremacy of Christ as mediator and guarantee of the new covenant. The message of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is all superior, and because he is superior, we must be faithful to him. In chapter 1, the book starts out with the foundation of a statement of who Christ is. He's the exact imprint of God. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is God come in human flesh. And he has victoriously sat down at the right hand of the Father. This sets up his supremacy and is the fundamental reality for which the author of Hebrews begins his exposition on why Christ is greater and why he is exhorting us to remain faithful to him. He starts out with chapters 1 and 2, showing how Christ is the superior word. He is greater than the angels. In Jewish tradition, the angels were believed to have given the Torah to Moses from God. So in this, what he's saying is that Christ is God's word and his message holds superiority. In chapters 3 and 4, Christ is the superior leader. He is greater than Moses. As Moses led the people to the promised land, so Christ leads his people to a land of rest. But Christ is greater because his rest is eternal in the hope of the new creation. In chapters 5 and 7, Christ is the greater high priest. He's greater than Aaron and Melchizedek, who in and of themselves could not be flawless. They needed to, they needed to offer sacrifices for themselves to cleanse themselves just so they could mediate for the people and offer sacrifices for the people. But Christ was the flawless high priest. He needed no sacrifice to cleanse him of his sins. He was the perfect sacrifice for us. And thus he could be the perfect mediator between us and God. And in chapters 8 through 10, Christ is the superior sacrifice of the new covenant that takes away the penalty of sins once for all perfectly. And thus he is the greater mediator of a greater covenant because He was the only pleasing sacrifice that could satisfy the just requirements of God's wrath. And now that we have a context bringing into what we're coming into in Hebrews chapter 10, let's explore why the new covenant is a guarantee of our total forgiveness 
and why, and why it should impact how we live as believers and as a church. Starting off in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why is the new covenant our guarantee of total forgiveness? Because Christ is the greater sacrifice. This section explains why the reality of Christ's sacrifice is the greater sacrifice that inaugurates the new covenant promise for forgiveness and partnership with God. Our sin separates us from God. There needed to be a way for our sins to be paid for. For God to be able to partner with us. The author of Hebrews starts out by showing that the old sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant was a shadow of the sacrifice that would take away the penalty of sins, but not the substance of our salvation. It pointed to greater realities that were made known in Christ. The Mosaic sacrifices were not sufficient to appease the wrath of God, and this was evidenced by the fact that they continued to sacrifice animals year after year. That's why the author of Hebrews says, continuing in verses 5 through 18. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, being the old covenant, to establish the second, that is the new covenant. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from the time until till his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on my minds, on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
What the Mosaic system of animal sacrifices could never do, Christ did perfectly. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is greater because it accomplished perfect forgiveness for us. His sacrifice grants us the grace which allows us to have the forgiveness necessary to have a restored relationship with the Lord. Christ is the sure promise of perfect and total forgiveness. It is completed. Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father. His sacrifice was completely sufficient. There is no need for us to add to Christ's work. His work was completely sufficient, which means our forgiveness in Christ as believers is complete. This anchors what the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, this perfect forgiveness, is why we can have confidence in our relationship with God. We have direct access to God through Christ. If we are faithfully continuing to follow Christ, we don't have to worry about gathering more forgiveness for ourselves. We have all we need in Christ. It's easy at times to try to gain for ourselves more forgiveness or to desire to. We may not necessarily think of it that way. You know, we maybe just are thinking, you know, oh, I, you know, I really messed up and I, I just really, really want the Lord to know that, you know, I'm really sincere and, you know, I, I really want him to forgive me, but, you know, I don't feel like he can forgive me unless I, you know, I do, you know, five more good things this week because my, right now I'm, I'm at negative four right now. You know, I need to even out the scales. That's not how our forgiveness works. Christ paid for our forgiveness once for all. And if we continue in repentance and we have turned from sin, we don't need to repeatedly offer sacrifices to earn ourselves more forgiveness from God. We already have that forgiveness in Christ. It is only our self-centered desire to contribute something to our salvation that makes us want to try to gain more forgiveness for ourselves. We can't earn greater forgiveness because Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is completely greater than any forgiveness we could try to earn for ourselves. That sure foundation of our faith, grounded in Christ's work, not any work that we could do, is the foundation for our salvation. Christ's sacrifice made us holy and cleanses us because Christ has sprinkled our hearts clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed pure with pure water. 
No longer do we need to produce sacrifices to be made holy before God. We are made holy through Christ. We are positionally seen as holy by the Father because of Christ. And this is why the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 23, he exhorts the believers, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. How should our new covenant guarantee of total and perfect forgiveness impact how we live as believers? Our guarantee of total and perfect forgiveness needs to make us hold tightly to the hope of our salvation, which is Christ. We hold tightly to our hope of salvation because it's not about what I have done. It's about what Christ has done for me. Christ's sacrifice grants total and perfect forgiveness. This means we do not need to produce more sacrifices to earn forgiveness. And we can have confidence in our faith because our hope is in Christ and not in ourselves. We hold fast because he who promised is faithful, not because I who chose am faithful. No, it's because he who promised is faithful. It is common to want to earn more forgiveness for ourselves. We try to pray a certain way or say something in a certain amount of times to God or try to promise to be better next time so God can like us more. All that stuff misses the reality of the amazing work that Christ has done for us. The sacrifice has been made. It is done. It's finished. You can't top that. Our responsibility is to turn from sin, turn to follow Christ, and trust him. Trust him that what he says about your forgiveness is enough. He is enough. Your forgiveness is that amazing. We must also continue to hold tightly to our hope. And this means that what we hold on to for security must be Christ alone. If our hope is in anything other than the finished work of Christ, we will waver in our hope. Circumstances change. You know, emotions ebb and flow. Our own actions on a week-to-week basis are just straight-up fickle. You know, I, one week I can feel like I'm on the top of the, the mountain doing really great. And literally two seconds later, I'm like flopping, like completely. Christ is the only stable foundation. Because he accomplished for mankind in one act something that I could never do for myself in a thousand lifetimes. Christ alone is what secures our hope of salvation. We can hold tightly to our hope because it is not dependent on us. This means that what guarantees our partnership with God is not what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. We can't save ourselves. We don't have to try to earn what we can never be worthy of. Christ saves. He loves us before we loved him. 
And because we have such a perfect and total forgiveness that gives us confidence, and our confidence in Christ should not just affect how we think in relation to ourselves, but also how we impact those around us. Continuing on in verses 24 and 25 of Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How should our new covenant guarantee of total and perfect forgiveness impact how we live as a church body? Our guarantee of total and perfect forgiveness needs to make us connect with one another a lot more deeply. First of all, it needs to make us take the focus off of ourselves and onto others. This means we don't stay stuck in the mindset of how things are just affecting me. We must look to how we can impact other brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of the gospel, to encourage them in the gospel, to uplift this church body so they can be a better ministry for the gospel. Individual needs are important. You need to have your your relationship with the Lord right. But also you need to impact the people around you as a member of the church. There are a lot of needs around you. A lot of needs you don't see. A lot of needs I don't see. There's a lot of people that are hurting. Lots of people that are struggling with different things. Lots of people that need reached out to. Even if they're normally the ones who reach out, sometimes those people need reached out to just as much as somebody who's in the corner. The church is not a pragmatic duty. It's a family of people who are people you're supposed to care about. Just slipping in and out shouldn't be our norm. There are seasons where we may not be pouring out ourselves as much as others, but we always need to stay engaged with one another as a church. Uplifting one another so that those that maybe are struggling are uplifted by those who are stronger at that moment. And even those people who are stronger are being uplifted by others in the body. Second of all, our impact on other believers in the church needs to be purposeful. This means that we need to be intentional in encouraging those around us. If we are supposed to consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, it's, something, it's not something that we just hope happens. It's, if someone comes up to me, I guess I'll talk to him. Maybe I'll encourage him. No. A lot of people get hurt in the d- get left in the dust if a congregation is passive about loving one another. We need to be active in seeking out loving each other and encouraging each other. Maybe the person you need to reach out to isn't the coolest. Maybe they're super awkward to talk to. Maybe they're straight up delirious because they got off night shift. (laughs) And just start 
rambling on about random stuff about nursing that nobody wants to hear about anyway. <laughs> Maybe they're the person who's really talkative and seems to be well-connected. Both people need encouraged. Both people need pointed to Christ. Both people need to know that they're loved by the body of Christ around them. And that's a responsibility for each of us. And lastly, our impact on other believers can only happen if you're actively meeting with believers. This means it's important to meet together. It's hard to encourage one another if we aren't around each other. I mean, in our age of technology, we have a little bit more leeway where we can, fit, we can FaceTime people. You know, we can try to connect in other ways. But there's something about just getting together as a body of believers, coming together, encouraging one another, loving one another, uplifting each other. Something special about that. And it's supposed to be driven by our confidence in Christ and our love for Christ. So kind of summing everything up, the new covenant is the guarantee of our total forgiveness. And that forgiveness should impact how we live as believers and as a church body. Christ is our sure guarantee of the promise of the new covenant's total and perfect forgiveness. It's about him and his work he did for us. We not, cannot add to the perfection of his sacrifice. Our total and perfect forgiveness needs to cause us to hold tightly to the hope of Christ. We need to have the gospel impact how we view our salvation. And our assurance of salvation should come from what we know that Christ has done, not from what I have done or, I, or whether, whether or not I feel better or worse about myself on a current day. And our total and perfect forgiveness needs to cause us to look outside of ourselves to encourage the believers around us. We need to have gospel focus when interacting with those around us. This is the body of Christ. We need to show each other that we love one another and we want to come alongside each other and encourage one another. And we have an awesome opportunity to do that this afternoon. We've got an awesome opportunity to do that right now. I mean, you've got a bunch of people in this room you can go up to and talk to and enjoy and encourage and love. The gospel is an amazing reality, and it needs to permeate every aspect of our lives. And I hope that the gospel is magnified today both in this message and then also as we come to communion and we, and we reflect on the Lord's death and as we hear the testimonies of Christ's work in people's lives at baptism, I hope that that blesses your heart and that moves you to have greater confidence in Christ and that moves you also to seek to love each other more and encourage each other more to grow in Christ. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for today. Lord, we're thankful for your word. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be magnified in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be confident in our assurance of your sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray that um, we would come 
to you. Um, Lord, we would be thankful for your um, sacrifice for us. And Lord, um, we would seek to encourage and love one another. We pray this all in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.